is Chelsea Higgs Wise. And I decided to start a show about being the biracial girl who was living her life, being half and half, never picking a side until one day the world informed me, girl, you're black. I'm from the You're listening to Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs Wise and Kat Maudlin Jackson. Hey, hello! Oh my goodness, it's been a wild week. You know what? I'm really excited to be here with you today because I could not wait to chat about all the things. So many things. But hey, everybody, happy Juneteenth! Happy Juneteenth! We are recording last week, but today, as this is coming at you, it's June 19th. Yes, yes. Happy Freedom Day. Thank you so much to everyone that celebrated over the weekend with Elegba. Great job, Elegba, holding it down, creating that space. Something else really cool is happening today. Okay. We're interesting, something very interesting. So the House Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Liberties, and Civil Rights is holding a hearing today on reparations. Mm-hmm. Anahazi Coates and Danny Glover are slated to speak. So I know that Mr. Coates had a statement out about reparations recently, right? And he was talking about that it wasn't just one big payout. So Kat, what do you think? I mean, what what have you heard? I'm interested, especially from somebody that's not of African descent. When you think about reparations, I respect your opinion. What do you think about the country? So Coates brought this issue back to the forefront of the American conversation in 2014 when he wrote the essay in The Atlantic, The Case for Reparations. And he mentions in the essay that he thought, or I believe it was in the essay, or he's come to discuss this publicly, that he didn't really, for a while, didn't think it was necessary. Now, I didn't really have a lot of thoughts on it. And up until 2014, it was something that I had heard about but hadn't considered here or there, really, getting to live in my privileged bubble. Honesty, yeah. But I read the essay, and the thesis of his argument is that America was founded on theft Mm. and that there are different forms of reparations. And I was listening to an interview that he did this month in the New Yorker Radio Hour where he was sharing that this theft persists and it is it has been seen by people who are still living today. Mm. And he points to housing discrimination, for example. And that's one of the focal points of his essay is he follows a man who was subject to predatory lending. He couldn't get a house. And so what he's saying basically is that it may or may not be these cash payouts, but it's about revising and restructuring our systems mm-hmm. to address that theft right, and distribute equity. Right, exactly. And so I I know that these have been so many different conversations with people that are running. I feel like Bernie Sanders completely dropped the ball on that whole conversation. I mean, even the great AOC, she did pretty terrible about this conversation. So I think that this is wonderful today. This is being held. The conversation is going so that we can all have some better language around this. If you want to ask me a little bit, I think here, especially in Virginia, if we want to talk a form of reparations, we can look at forms of criminal justice reform. I don't know, maybe marijuana justice, legalization of expunging records and talking about economy, right? That theft idea of giving something back, uh, the livelihood, and that way we can have better housing and better opportunities. But I do know that as well as here in Virginia, we're looking at reversing the Jim Crow laws. Right. So are they going to look at that as a form of reparations? Are we going to even have that word come up in Virginia? I think that'll be interesting. But yeah. And you can't have a conversation about reparations without... (laughs) 
addressing Jim Crow laws. Right. And you made a good point in a conversation that we had a while back in the vein of marijuana law reform, not only clearing records, but also putting mechanisms into place to make sure that black business owners, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when mar- if when marijuana becomes legalized, mm-hmm are benefiting from this the same way that white owners benefit from this. And not just black business owners, the people that were impacted by the marijuana prohibition, mm-hmm. right? The people that had that could not get a job because of this charge on their criminal record because they were actually incarcerated because they couldn't get their driver's license because of the fines up until now. These are the folks I want to see and have ownership in the marijuana industry when it becomes legal because we know that is going to happen and it should become legal because right now Virginia is just doing the medical piece, which is completely completely whitewashed and keeping a lot of people out. But lots of conversations on reparations. But hopefully today people are taking the time to speak on Juneteenth because that's what the day is really about. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that this conversation or I do think that this hearing that's happening right now is largely symbolic. Mm hmm. I don't mm-hmm. see it making any substantial change. Yeah, me but too. But it's happening. Right. And in that interview that I mentioned, Coates was asked, are you going to keep talking about this or are you going to move on? He's an essayist. He's not an academic. Mm-hmm. Right. But he makes the point, very humbly so, but honestly, that he has a way of expressing ideas about this and a way of getting people to listen. And he's very torn about whether or not he should keep talking Mm. because he has that voice. He has that platform. And and in a way he was saying, you know, is it right for me to say, I don't want to talk about this anymore and keep moving on. And so I have a feeling that this is something that we'll continue to address on the show because here in Richmond, we have a platform. Right. I was just thinking, wow, that's a whole mirror moment. Right. Right. We could probably put that mirror to a few issues that we talk about. Maybe a few. (laughs) (laughs) Just a few. Just a few. Oh, man. Yeah, so that's what's been going on. The next thing that I've been thinking about is the Arthur Ashe Boulevard dedication Mm -hmm. happening this upcoming weekend. Yeah, I'm really excited. I think that Richmond has done a fantastic job of engaging locals in this conversation. August Moon, who is a radio name and personality here in Richmond and really held it down for activist movement, especially around Arthur Ashe here in Richmond, is going to be honored, I believe, and mentioned. And the Moon sisters here from Richmond, Andre. Anjali Moon, Cisha Moon. Anjali is the founder of Africana Film Festival. So really continue to hold it down to shaping narratives and stories Mm -hmm. here in Richmond. And I'm really interested if we can highlight those moments from Arthur Ashe's history of his activism of when he wasn't polite and Of course, he was an amazing athlete. And of course, we know the story of why he was taken from us earlier. But what about the activism that really made him have his platform of making some moves here in Richmond? So I'm really excited about that's coming up. Everybody, hope to see everybody out there. So the dedication is Saturday at 11. There's also a couple of days of events leading up to it. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be at the Museum of History and Culture. And I'm a little curious. The dedication happened right after I moved back to Richmond. And I was delighted to see that. But I missed out on years of context of that coming about. Of the boulevard, you mean? Right, right. I mean, when I lived here before, it was just the boulevard and conversations of renaming it. If they were happening, I didn't know that. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, yeah, girl. You missed some conversations. Yeah, so give me the the quick and dirty. Yeah, run down. Hey, shout out. (laughs) Municipal mania. (laughs) Yeah, so really quickly, here in Richmond, because race is everything in the formal capital of the Confederacy, you would have thought that renaming a boulevard for a hero would have been (laughs) non-controversial. Sorry, 
you're right. You're right. I forgot. But of course, and you know, remembering that the boulevard is right there in the fan. It's right there in a certain type of demographic where people live. And so there was pushback. Absolutely. It cuts right through Monument Avenue. There it is. Right through Monument Avenue. And so, yeah, people had a problem about naming this. They came to city council and they were like, what about the cost of the signs, bro? It was why, why shouldn't we put this money and this energy somewhere else? I mean, people were lining up at city hall, just like they were at like, the budget meeting to contest changing this name. Now, what happened, I'm gonna tell you what, cause I even saw it, this is from my view of what I saw happening on the city council was that when the Coliseum conversation came up about having a new Coliseum and this past fall winter, and that was, became a racial issue. A lot of the city council people started to shift the conversation. Let's not talk about the Coliseum. Let's talk about doing this great thing of uh. renaming Naming the boulevard. Convenient. Convenient. And then that's how we got Arthur Ashe Boulevard. But this has really been pushed for a while. And shout out to everyone that's been doing that work. But to go through the timeline, because you have to always ask the question, if we're doing something right, what happened? What was the controversy behind that to get Richmond to do something right when it comes to race? I hope to see everybody there on Saturday. (laughs) You're welcome. Yes. So this is a celebratory weekend, definitely, for Richmond, totally. So Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax lawyers. Okay. Okay. Here we are. Yep. Here we are. They are asking prosecutors to open cases into the allegations of sexual assault made by Vanessa Tyson and Meredith Watson in February. And they're saying that he was blackmailed. Look, so all of this is really convenient timing. Weren't we talking on the show last week about this whole special sessions thing that's coming up in July and that being a real risk of our governor to bring everybody back together of what else could be brought up. I think this is an exact timing of Fairfax's folks getting ready and having their defenses ready in case this is brought up. And if you read into the article more about what this blackmail is, it's truly just trying to, in my opinion, allow the survivor not to have to go public with her own trauma and having an opportunity for everybody to have a conversation. The thing that they're saying is that my client would like to avoid media attention around this traumatic event, which has affected her entire life since, and she is not interested in any financial damages. Mr. Fairfax's past behavior is obviously disqualifying for any public office. We hope that he reaches the same conclusions. Please respond by 3 p.m. today. Asked whether Fairfax would pursue blackmail charges against Watson, spokesperson Burke said that a closer look into the circumstances surrounding how this allegation was made should be part of a law enforcement probe into the allegations. These are serious issues that require serious investigation and fact-finding. We are here to leave it to the professional judgments. And honestly, the last quote I want to just read is, Miss Watson didn't put herself or Fairfax's family, she knew his wife at Duke, through the public revelation of another rape allegation, so she gave him the opportunity to resign. Miss Watson never threatened to sue Fairfax and never demanded any money or favors. So this is not about a blackmail piece. It's really about shaping a narrative before the conversation comes back up. Yeah, and what nerve to be able to say, okay, bring it on. It's, I mean, that's been the entire tone of the Fairfax camp since this happened. Like, how dare you? What? Turn my nose up. This is not, this is not real. So how do we treat folks that have allegations of the past? How do we treat folks that we know have done things in the past? When we have screenshots of text messages between people and minors, like... Or we, babies that have been born from it. Oof. You saw exactly where I was going there. So 
we are going to have to talk about some of these elections. Elections were last week here in, in all over Virginia, but especially here in Richmond. Thank you, everybody who voted. Yes. Thank you, everyone who voted. Thank you for everyone that volunteered and held it down at the polls. So real fast, let's go over a little bit of some primary stuff. I didn't have too much of the, the news around. Thanks for holding it down, Cat, on the radar, because I was so tuned in to what was happening locally. And I was one of those people at the polls that was trying to hold it down in the 6th District of Richmond. So Ghazala Hashmi one congratulations to her that's someone that has me super excited and she's exactly who we need to take that seat from the republicans right we've got to flip that seat over in the 10th eileen and zach brown zach brown who is that voice that just wrote in here what is that hello tykeen what's up how are you all that bass it's just six one himself. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Welcome to the conversation real fast. We were just finishing the on the radar news piece and wanted to wrap up with primaries really quickly. But there was also a big race right here in Richmond and SD sixteen where Joe Morrissey ended up Are you not gonna congratulate him? Look, we're we're gonna let the people know it's coming, but we are gonna have a conversation more about that sixteenth race. But Joe Morrissey did win, and that means that Rosalind Dance is no longer gonna be representing the sixteenth come November. So we're gonna definitely get into more about the conversation with Joe Morrissey, but make sure you all are gonna stick around because we have a great guest, Zoe Spencer from Virginia State University, who's gonna be coming and talking about her work as well as people that might be trying to work against her later on in the conversation. Yeah, she's gonna be talking about gender pay mm-hmm. and wage gaps. Yeah. And if you don't know Dr. Spencer, then this will be a real treat. She's a big voice right here in the area, especially in Petersburg. And she talks about racism like with the best of them. So that's what we've got coming at you on our show today. So stick around. Okay, so to have the local conversation after these exciting elections and primaries, I have not only friend of the show, Ty King Cooper, that you heard come and sit to join us our news section, but welcome officially, Ty King. Thanks for having me. Yes, welcome back. And our special guest of the day, Dr. Zoe Spencer. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Tell us really quickly a little bit about who you are and what you do in our community. So I am Dr. Zoe Spencer. I am a professor of sociology, but most importantly, I'm a scholar activist or an activist scholar from Berry Farms Projects in Washington, D.C. Can you tell us a little bit about Berry Farms Projects? Yes, it's gone. (laughs) 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 Yeah, so Berry Farms, people think that it was named after Mayor Berry, but in Washington, it wasn't. It was actually a historic landmark where newly freed slaves settled in Washington, D.C. Later on, they built projects, the hood. My grandmother raised my mother and my uncles there, and my mother raised me there until we moved, but my roots stayed there because people go down south, I will always go to southeast. Unfortunately, gentrification has happened in southeast because uh, Berry Farms was a project right on the Anacostia River, and now my home, what I, what I consider my alpha, is gone. So it's the hood. It was the hood. It mm-hmm. isn't anymore. Well, thank you so much for bringing your lens to the show today. Tykeen, really quickly, you want to remind people what you do? Yes. So I'm the executive director of Virginia Excels, better known as Mr. 6-1. I'm the only person 
that you know that grew (laughs) an inch in his 30th year. He is really excited about this extra inch that he's grown, late maturity, puberty, whatever you have it. Congratulations. I claim it all. Also chair of the street committee, which I sit on as well. Do you? Shout out to Zachary. Don't do that. Don't do that. All right, y'all. So let's kind of dive in because I've been really anxious to discuss everything that happened this week. I am a constituent of the 16th district, which in this primary was a race between Rosalind Dance and Joe Morrissey. Joe Morrissey, as we know, has been here before. I think he's been just about everywhere in Richmond. And we know him as the man that not only slept and impregnated his intern that was underage, he's now married with her. They have multiple kids and there has just been severe controversy around this man's entire career, not just with underagers, but also his behavior and just a lot of his ethics, even outside of politics and his own businesses, Medicaid, group home things. Been in the news for about 10 years and when we heard that he was back, we noticed because he and his wife were joining the Richmond City Democratic Committee. We were hearing where he was going to move, what district he was going to run. And if you know anything about Joe, you know that he does have a lot of support from a lot of those in the black community. He was the defense lawyer for if you committed a crime, you get your 10 grand together and then you go see Joe. You will get off. Tykeen, I think you shared a really good story with us before. Was that on Municipal Mania? I get confused. I don't I don't know if I publicly shared that story, but long story short, I grew up in Farmville and I remember two commercials from lawyers, Joel Bieber with that jingle and then Joe Morrissey. I've never lost a jury trial. And so this is like 97, 98, like nine, 10 years old. And I remember we had a murder in Buckingham County. And I remember going to the barbershop because before we had the street committee, we had the barbershop talk, right? (laughs) And I vividly remember folks saying, hey, that guy's going to get off. He hired Joe Morrissey. And so some time elapsed and I remember going back to the barbershop and people were celebrating like my first grade teacher did when OJ was acquitted. And I didn't have at the time a true perception of the criminal justice system in America. And I was like, there's no way like he killed someone like he's going to go to jail probably forever. Right. And so back in 2016, I was on a mission to like find this case when Joe was running for mayor. And I went back and researched it. The man was found guilty, had a guilty plea, and served zero time in prison. Because he had Joe, the fighter for the people. Yeah, fighting Joe Morrissey. Fighting Joe Morrissey. So Joe came back strong and his entire campaign staff, when I saw him, were he was filled with black women. Black women were working for him, campaigning, collecting signatures out there. As a constituent, I had him knock on my door twice. I had two mailers. And I when I tell you he was out there. Did he physically so <laughs> did he physically knock on your door? Twice, yeah. Okay, because when I got home from D.C., I had the mailer on my door, and it said he stopped by, and mm. I didn't know if he really stopped by. or. Uh, yeah, no, so one time it actually was him outside of my door. I was able to see that. Another time it was someone else in the campaign that I will do that, yeah. When I you did, said you were able to see that, did you, like, hide on the inside? Absolutely. <laughs> I No, I, I have my ring. Oh, I screenshotted it. It was one of those moments, like, this is happening, and his mailers weren't little ones. It was, like, full page. Full pagers. Big print. Big print. So so for folks who may be vision impaired or yeah. differently abled, it looked like a big church program, right? right? So I think I told you when Joe first announced in January, I said Joe Morrissey's going to win this race unless 
delegate Ayer runs for Senate. And I said that he was going to outwork Senator Dance. So a couple statistics. So Senator Dance spent more than eight times as much money as Joe Morrissey did in this race. Another thing, Senator Dance essentially spent $51 per vote. Joe Morrissey spent $5 per vote. So for some context here, in 2008, President Obama, well, then Senator Obama spent $11 per vote. In mm -hmm. 2012, that was $15 per vote. So, I mean, she spent the money, but she didn't do the work. And I think in some ways, I think, I, well, I, I tweeted this, that so this show's going to air after the fact, but this upcoming weekend, we have the Central Committee meeting mm -hmm. for the Democratic Party of Virginia. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be very interesting because there should be a lot to learn from here. But I will caution folks who are kind of random on Twitter about DPVA. The truth of the matter is DPVA shouldn't be involved in the primary. And so the perception is that they were involved in this primary and they still lost, which is that's a completely different dynamic. But I'm starting to see people in leadership in the party now say that they won't support Morrissey. And it's interesting because as you talk about like Roy Moore and Trump, the party apparatus, the party plan, like the governing document says that you have to support the nominee. So it's going to be an interesting few months. And it's definitely going to be interesting even here in Richmond because the Richmond City Democratic Committee congratulated him and had a lot of controversy around that. So what is that going to look like here in Richmond? I mean, and then just having the bigger conversation about what this means for people that have a controversial past, like Joe Morrissey, like Mayor Barry in D.C. Like Mayor Barry in D.C. Yeah, well, that's a whole different political. We won't talk about that. Let's, we'll stay on Morrissey and then we'll come back to Mayor Barry. I'm not going to defile my mayor. We're also looking into what's happening with Lieutenant Justin Fairfax. We could bring up Ralph Norton. Mm, go ahead. I'm sorry, who? Chuck Richardson. Chuck Richardson, who looks like he may run for the fifth as well. There's some rumbling on the ground on that. Okay, so forgive my ignorance, but who is Chuck Richardson and what is he about to do? And What's your perception? So Chuck was actually made history back in 1977 by being on the very first majority black city council. For about five years, Richmond City was not able to vote because of the DOJ case saying that our lines and our annexing of Chesterfield was rooted in racism to try and whitewash the vote here in Richmond. Mm -hmm. So they held our elections. And when we came back hardcore, we had a majority black city council. And Chuck Richardson was actually one of the young ones on that council. Since then, he had a lot of issues around addictions and accusations and behaviors and he's come back in the last couple of years and had a lot to say here in Richmond specifically about the fifth seat and Parker Agalesto who moved out of the district and brought to attention took him to court about how the sitting council of the fifth district should not be able to keep his seat he needs to get up and go and he has decided to do that so now we're having a special election in the fifth ward right here in Richmond but Chuck has been around for a while and people have gotten mad at him for some things and bringing up his past especially particularly around addictions but are we ready to bring him back in because we have clippings and receipts from rtd Richmond times dispatch trashing this man so it's the narratives that have been made how do we if we do accept these people back into our world and even when we're talking about joe morrissey we've had some people come in and say well what about ralph northam and saying well now you're comparing apples to oranges and and these types of things but i would love to hear more of a conversation about 
what is the value of black women in these conversations, even if they're not the person we're talking about particularly, especially if the victims or survivors of these men in question and their behaviors are black women. And we talked even a little earlier about Chris Brown from a cultural sense, and we could go into the R. Kelly, but Dr. Spencer, so how how do you feel? How do you, would you frame a lot of this? Because I love watching you in social media. One of the big reasons I invited you here today is because I believe in your voice and it is so strong and powerful. Powerful. But yeah, I would love to hear any kind of feedback from the conversations we're just kind of put out here. Yeah. So for me, because, you know, as I, I told you before, I don't follow, follow politics, right. the party politics I'm I'm not into. But my, my lens is more of a sociological and intersectional lens, really dealing with the, the history of race and gender in America. But in particular, Virginia, which is the, the starting point of the institution of enslavement. And so for me, I always look at things from a socio-historic perspective. And as a woman of color, as a black woman from Berry Farms, which is why I always introduce myself in that way, I understand the historic pattern of disregard, objectification, commodification, lynching of black women, period. So when I start to see and I understand Joe Morrissey's history, I understand the allegations against Fairfax, I understand Ralph Northam and his shenanigans and I think it's a very troubling time where you have not just human beings, let's not talk about it from a political standpoint, but human beings who one, feel empowered mm. to denigrate, but then the more important conversation is about how the public supports these human beings in that quest for power, despite the the patterns, right? So when you're talking about Joe Morrissey and his history, I mean, that's a fact. So you're talking about a white male who impregnated an underage black female, which by law is probably statutory rape. I, you know, so, and then it becomes legitimated by the marriage, right? right. For me, it is, it is tricky. It stings because I am a historian. So I go back to that historic past of white men and young black women. Then you have Northam and can we can we hold on that that history of white men and young black women? Yeah, so I like to interject there. Please. So first of all, hot off the presses of the street committee. <laughs> I've been told that there's a pending charge for trespassing for Joe Morrissey in Chesapeake, which that would be very interesting. I don't think it impacts him mm -hmm. per se any more than it already does, but it's going to make this upcoming weekend even more interesting. But you talk about the history of black women and black girls being raped. Then the choice of that Christmas card, the picture from that oh Christmas God. card oh. a oh few years ago. Oh, my God. That was in my door when I got home. Yeah. What? Yeah. And, and the time period piece. And I mean, that period piece also, you talk about the legitimacy of the relationship because they got married. It's also just like talking about Lincoln fathering certain children and the mother of his kids. That's a survivor of that rape. It's not legitimized just because he says he loves her or this sort of thing. It's a, another example of power. So I, I wanted to just pause on that. I personified the Me Too movement. Ooh. Yeah. And not and not and I, I want to be careful to 
to not invoke rape in that situation, but okay. I want to because that's not that situation. So I want to be careful about that because I don't want people to misinterpret what I'm saying about Morrissey and his past and how his relationship developed. However, the history, the historic context that all of these patterns are rooted in can't be ignored, right? And I interrupted you. But... No, yeah, we. I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the way that you said legally it would be framed as statutory rape before talking specifically about the Joe Morrissey piece when he was engaging in intercourse with a 17-year-old. And you can find even the screenshots, if I'm going to put that out there very openly, about that were put out there in the case uh, between him and his now wife, Myrna, about him ejaculating inside of her even when she said no. And she's saying, you know, I, it just happened so fast. These are on the internet. You can find these, but we have to just really look at not just what it is now, but the process of how this happened and Absolutely. how we got here. And the perception of the public and what it says about, as a whole, the public's value for Black women and Black girls' lives, right? right. And, and I think for me, and this is just me, that was major for me. When I came home and I, I saw the postcard in my door, it invokes that history, right? And, and we're at a real delicate point because we're 400 years in. In to the institution of enslavement and watching the patterns across the board and the way that black women's bodies, our sexual agency, our right to say no, you know, just the way that the public perceives us is it is rooted in, in a very fine historic stereotype of who black women in particular are. And that is concerning for me. It is. It's concerning too that I don't think a lot of people recognize immediately their lack of awareness of how they're even perpetuating the same stereotype of lack of value on black women on our bodies because they are so complicit or they don't ask the questions or they're remaining to me too civil right in the year of reconciliation and civility i don't necessarily think that we need civility in order to reconcile i think a lot of this reconciliation needs to be truth out there very blunt so people can realize and recognize not just reconcile we have to recognize first how our behavior right now is just continuing this pattern that you're talking about. I think, and I wrote a piece a, a while ago, but I think that um, it is like more like a social cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. I think that people are so anxious and so wanting to feel that race relations, gender relations in America have shifted so much so that it is painful for us when there are these remnants of the history of exploitation, the history of sexual oppression, when that be racial oppression that becomes present, that that when we see it, it doesn't fit within the frame, especially coming off of the heels of Obama and the fallacy of this colorblind right. society that we never existed in. Those things become uncomfortable for, for, for people in the public. And so we dismiss it, not because we don't feel that it's illogical or we don't feel that it's wrong. We dismiss it because to accept what it really is will reshape or force us to reshape our perception about who we are and where we are in America and especially in the state of Virginia today. Mm -hmm. Holding that mirror up. Yeah. We'd have to sit in the uncomfortable ourselves as individuals. Absolutely. It's not just the system. It's not just everything that's happening around us. It, it could be us as well. The value that we have in this social cognitive dissonance that you're talking about is something that I think that is important for us to now bring into our individual conversations as we have this. Being able to ask ourselves and ask our peers what this means for us. 
Yeah. So not to backtrack too much, but both of you all mentioned that you had flyers in your door Mm -hmm. because Morrissey stopped by. So for my personal research, Mm -hmm. did you all ever get anything at your door from the dance campaign? Oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't. I meant to bring that up. I can't hear you, Zoe. No. So thank you for bringing this up, because when we do now start having the political conversation, which should not be different from this social cognizance that we're talking about, this is the intersection, this is the ecosystem that we're functioning in. Now, when we're putting our political hat on, which is still the same head of my social hat, right, as a black woman, I was supporting dance. I didn't see her around in my neighborhood. I didn't see not one. Okay, I did see one sign, a little one. I saw a whole bunch of big signs from Joe. Joe showed up at all the community events. The only time I saw Roz was when it was a Richmond City Democratic Committee, and that is a privilege of mine to be on that committee and to be exposed to her. So if I had not had been in that space, I would not have been. And so it's this moment, too, of who's doing the work? How can I understand how he won? I I can. I hear people. I want to take them at their word right of why they voted why he won and so now it comes back to and this is where a lot of people go straight to the loyalty of the party status quo this is what we have to do to stay in line is just support him because he's a democrat but i'm still looking at my values this again this dissonance i don't know which way to go yeah i I... so joe does have an opponent his name is waylon ross i don't know waylon i don't either he will be running as an independent. He got his signatures in. He certified. He was certified on Tuesday. The street committee says that Waylon. So I know Waylon was a legislative aide for Morrissey when Morrissey was in the House of Delegates. The street committee says that Waylon was terminated from that role, which if I was a journalist, anyone, any journalist is listening, I would I would ask that question. Right. I would do this research and say, oh, well, Waylon, why were you dismissed? Who were you replaced with? Mm-hmm. Were you replaced by a younger woman? Right. So those are the type of questions that people should be asking right now. So that's going to be another interesting dynamic because I did, I peeked at Waylon's page and he had made a comment like, so even when Joe brought the AK-47 to the house floor. Yeah, that happened, y'all. Waylon said, well, I was the person that brought him the gun. Like I have my own stunts coming. So this will be a very- He said that recently or back in the day when- No, he said it this week, since Tuesday, because I looked at his page since Tuesday. He was like, he was like, yeah, Joe did that. But I brought the gun to him. So. Right. Well, we'll be watching sure. that he'll be running as an independent. It'll be really interesting to see how people now speak out about this. I know even, again, myself, when you look at Joe's quote unquote policy issues that might speak to more people. I don't know, guys. This is this is going to be something, a conversation we just continue. But the idea that this all lays on the back of the value of black women gets me to the conversation. I really wanted Dr. Spencer to come here and talk to us a little bit about your own experience on being valued. Do you mind opening up and giving the people a little bit of background on the case? Yes, a legal case that you are fighting down in Petersburg. Yes. So I have a case. It's Spencer v. Virginia State University, and you can find it on Pacer Monitor. And also the opinions are published. And it is a wage discrimination and retaliation case under the EPA and Title VII. It runs deep, but what's they, the EPA? For I'm our sorry, listeners? the Equal Pay Act and Title VII, which is a really, really hot topic with the Paycheck Fairness Act and the movements, the the womanist and feminist movements trying to push for legislation on equal pay for women. And so, my allegation 
was that two former administrators who did not have tenure or experience as professors were placed in an associate professor role for which I had to go up for promotion and tenure and were paid $50,000 and $35,000 more than me per year. So there's, you know, more to it than that, but that's, I'll stop there. So So respectively, one was paid $50,000 more and the other was paid $35,000. Yes. And I said, no, Mm -hmm. I requested a salary increase to that of the males who did not have the experience, the seniority and time as an associate professor and they told me no I filed a lawsuit and then I went into another and they were and this is an HBCU and so their black men didn't value my worth as a black woman and then I went to federal court and I uh, lost a whole bunch of times uh, on what they call summary judgment. And so a white male adjudicated that I did not have a case and that the men were entitled to make more than I. And then I went to the appellate court and three white men determined again that I did not have a case. One judge said that my case was singularly weak as he demolished me in oral argument. And the opinion, again, affirmed summary judgment. So I have lost really a total of three times. And how long have you been fighting this battle? This is for you. I'm actually five years now. So this is my fifth year. So I decided that I was going to give my attorney a break and gain my voice back because in oral argument in the Fourth Circuit, I felt like I lost my voice as a black woman. And in that setting, you know, like I talked about before, the history of black women's subjugation, being in that old courtroom and being in front of three older white male judges who I knew did not understand or didn't really even care about my plight, I felt like I lost my voice. And so I have undertaken that if I'm going to lose concretely, I'm going to lose speaking for myself. And so I will be taking this to the Supreme Court. You all are the first that I'm speaking to this about, but I will be taking it to the Supreme Court. Wow. When? My brief will be filed and I'm talking, so I'm going to let them know, but my, um, it's called a petition for writ of certiorari. It'll be filed on June 28th, which will be the day of action for me. In DC? Yes. How has the support been around the community with this case the last few years and, and then even currently now? So the AAUW, which is the association, the American Association of University Women have been extremely supportive. And this is a, a group, a bunch of older white women who <laughs> have been absolutely phenomenal. My family, my immediate circle, my school family, my student family, but I've been kind of low key about it. Mm -hmm. So this is really kind of the first time that I'm speaking about it in public. And so, you know, I'm hoping that people will continue to support. But then again, I mean, you can link this if you want to do a link between the conversation that we were just having. Sometimes it's your own people that you're actually fighting for who really don't understand the reason why you fight. And again, black women are consistently vilified for and ostracized for daring to speak up we're supposed to take the the whippings and that's not really the word I want to use but I'm on air so I won't curse as much but (laughs) we're supposed to take the whippings take the oppression take the abuse and smile and say it's okay and you know when we dare speak up or fight then we're labeled and and ironically the tension will come from people who look like you the very people that you are fighting for because this fight is so not about me it's so much bigger than I 
Right. And there needs to be a lot of support going into HBCUs. And we know the best type of support and voice are those of Black women. But if we're not paying them, yes. if we're not valuing them in those spaces, then how are we going to attract them? How are we going to be inspiring even our young Black women to Absolutely. come back to HBCUs and, and give back to those spaces? How have you been taking care of yourself? the last five years. I'm sorry, here comes a clinical social worker out of me. I love it. You know something, self-care, I've always been a fighter. So I've been fighting. This is just a fight that has situated me where the universe has situated me in it. I don't, I don't do well with self-care. My self-care kind of is the fight, if that makes sense. To me, it makes sense. Yeah, and so following the fight through to the end and it's been very stressful but fortunately I have a really strong internal support network that is my family that small group yeah. of insulation because you have to have peace in your home when you fighting yeah. on the outside and so that has kind of kept me balanced and you mentioned that you lost your voice for a while you felt like it had been taken from you oh snatched can you tell us a little bit about your process and do you feel like you found it again I just got finished writing, actually, when I was on the treadmill today. I just got finished reading the last part of my, it's called a pro se brief because I'm doing it by myself, a pro se petition. And writing it and critiquing what they said and their opinion really gave me my voice back. Mm. And to deliver it to the people, actually, when we were in oral argument, they actually refused to reference me as doctor. They called me Miss oh Zoe Spencer, the judge and the university's counsel. And so this is really greater. You know, people will think, oh, she's coming after Virginia State. This is so much greater than Virginia State because what happens is that you fight for your sisters there. And then when the judicial system takes over and then they start making case law with your name on it, it becomes bigger because then they can use that to oppress and or discriminate against other people. And if my legal theory is wrong, then I need someone who I feel is more partial to be able to tell me that, no, that's not the way it is. These unqualified men are legally entitled to make more money than you doing what you do. If that's what it says, then let the Supreme Court tell me or not read it. They may not read it. I don't know. But yeah, the process has given me my voice back, but not until they see it and until they read it and until this airs, because I'm very comfortable in understanding that there is also, you know, justice is not blind. Mm. And when you go in front of a courtroom, human beings are not blind. And it is the perceptions that they bring to the bench. It's the perceptions that they bring to the podium that determines the outcome that is your life. It's a job for them, but it it is your life. And so against recommendations and advice. I said I was going to do it myself because if I'm going to lose at this level, I would rather lose telling my own story instead of depending on people who are not attached to my struggle to tell my story for me. So in this work and over the past five years, how many similar instances have you found in the Commonwealth? Of people getting lynched in, in, in Virginia's court system? Well, oh, what? I was... I was talking specifically about the gender pay. No, she had the right question. She had the right question. 
Well, the gender pay is is consistent, I'm sure. I'm sure you all, you know, will get a flurry of women who don't have the the stamina. And that's something that I put in my brief that don't have the stamina to litigate because it comes with a very, very heavy financial, social, political, and especially financial tax. And so there are many, many women who are being discriminated against as far as their pay, the advancement opportunities. Listen, gender discrimination discrimination just like sexism and patriarchy and racism are not dead they're alive and well but back to the the point about lynching in the court system I have witnessed not just myself which is the reason why I'm fighting I have witnessed my comrade Candace Lucas be lynched in the justice system in the judicial system and I have watched the propaganda that swirls around black women who dare stand up for a cause and dare speak out and dare be unapologetic in their resistance to oppression I have watched it happen and that it's happening here in Virginia and I'm not from Virginia in this 2019 16 19 2019 dynamic is is really is is strong for me so I want to make sure that you are able to give all the information for folks to be able to follow your case and a good understanding because this is not over. This is just the first time that you are putting your voice out there in this capacity and there's just more to come. So remind people, when is your day of action and how else can they follow you? Yeah, so people can follow me on Facebook and my Facebook is Zoe Spencer is Unapologetically Black and I will give a link to the actual website that we're creating around this journey to the Supreme Court. So yes, and the day of action, I'm encouraging everybody to come out is going to be June 28th, 2019, a very significant date. And it will be at the courtyard in front of the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. Great. And we will be able to share that information as well on our social media at Race Capital. Thank you so much, Dr. Spencer, for sharing your story. But before we let you and chair of the street committee go, you know, we got to hit y'all with the what's your privilege? What's your privilege is a segment of the show where we invite our guests to describe their own privilege and how they use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy here in our place, space, and time. I'm going to put it out there to allow whoever wants to go first to step up. Well, I'll use my privilege to defer (laughs) to Dr. Spencer. That's oppression. (laughs) Uh, So... My privilege is for certain a pseudo class privilege and also an academic privilege that I was able to. And I don't want to do the pull yourself up by the bootstrap narrative that, you know, you come from the hood. But the reality of it is, is that I do have class privilege. I also have an academic privilege by my degrees to be able to study and do research and speak and then have platforms such as these to give my analysis of race, class and gender oppression period. I use my privilege by dismantling my privilege. And so in my activism work, I use my privilege to make sure that when I am speaking or when I'm engaged in in a struggle that isn't mine, that I make sure to include the voices of the people, to pass the mic to the voices of the people, and to not use my academic privilege to define what their struggle looks like to them. Right. Does that sometimes, does that always feel like a privilege? I think the privilege is inherent 
it, the privilege is inherent because I am quote unquote Dr. Mm. Zoe Spencer. And if you think about it, kind of, that's why I'm here even on your show, because my quote unquote credentials give me the privilege to be able to analyze the issues that you all are speaking about. The problem is, and I have a big problem with this, people get mad, is where if I'm in Baltimore or Ferguson or whatever, and then I come back and I give my analysis without yielding to the voices of the people who were there, that's exploitation. Right. So I have to use my academic privilege to pass the mic and defer to the voices of the people, no matter how attached I am to the struggle, the struggle still isn't mine. And so I don't know if that's a privilege or not, but I think it is. I think it's a privilege to have control of the mic, right. but then it's a responsibility to pass the mic to the voices and to the people so that they can speak for themselves and where they can't to speak what the people said, as opposed to speaking my interpretation. Exactly. Exactly. And you mentioned the responsibility, but it's also that responsibility to model that behavior for others as well. And it is a privilege that you're able to do that. But what I always try and encourage people is like watch the steps of how these certain leaders amplify the voices of those that are really living, breathing and working the struggle. Mr. Cooper? Yes. So, I mean, the first privilege, I definitely say I'm a cisgendered male, mm -hmm. right? My network so that kind of enables me to have the quote unquote street committee because I can say some things because I'm far enough as an outsider that I can say some things that other people can't say. But because of some of my affiliations, like they trust me enough to share those things with hopes of me sharing them to other folks. <laughs> exactly. So I can kind of be a, like a conduit economic class. I've been fortunate enough to get into some rooms and sometimes just get in those rooms is a step. And I try to use my privilege to to help people like Dr. Zoe. Right. If there's a situation where I can help someone, like maybe I should speak up. So if I were in that situation, I would say, hey, y'all pay me. This is what I would do. I'm, I know a lot of people not cut from the same cloth. Like, why y'all not helping the sister right here? Mm. If um, you were at VSU and yes. in that realm, that's what you would do? Yes. So what can people do if they're not in that realm, but they still want to help Dr. Zoe? I mean, I think telling her story is a, is a big part of it, just bringing awareness to it. Sharing it. Because she's not the only person that's dealing with this, right? right. And so there are, as we talk about equity so much, right now it's like a key buzzword they are firms that have equity studies and they even talk about how women and specifically women of color like negotiations and because they don't have anyone in the room that looks like them yep. that's sitting at the table right yep. and so sometimes they're just like they just accept whatever they get and in some ways we've been kind of conditioned to do that to not ask for more just be acceptive and equity really people are, are using this very symbolic term but it's always been about money and dollars at the end of the day as well some reallocation of resources that's what the root of equity talks about, especially because this is a capitalist society. So I love that you talk about sharing her story because now she is writing those opinions. She's coming on radio. So sharing her story will be accessible and easy for folks to read about it, learn about it, and look up how it's also happening around. As the 100th anniversary of when women, <coughs> white women got the right to vote comes up next year, this equal pay and women's rights and EPA and ERA and all the equal, equal, equal comes up, we still have to look at the conversations that are happening right now in our area that talk and speak about the survival of Black women. And thank you. I want to say thank you humbly for that. That's beautiful. 
Tycane is all right. I'm going to tell y'all what, and I really do want to thank men, especially black men. Absolutely. Black men like Tycane. You create a space just between our, our friendship and even in this room to be able to speak openly about this. And that is just not what happens in the South with black women. We're, we're just not given those spaces often. We don't walk in assuming it's okay for us. And I, I think his voice is, is, is imperative because a lot of times when you're talking about equity and parity and equality, when the assumption is that you're a man hater right. or, you know, you don't like men and that it's anti-men, anti-masculine. And I, you know, anti-black. I want Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I, I definitely want to give you love for that because that definitely is in my platform. And to hear you say that just reaffirms that, you know, I think a lot of men would probably stand up in the same way, but unfortunately those aren't the ones in power. Right. Yeah. So I went to an Angela Davis event here, I guess it's about two years ago now. And at the VMFA? Yes. Yeah. And Shout so, out to Africana and VCU that brought yes, her. Yes, yes. And so she challenged men there. Like, it resonated with me. She challenged She had them there. stand up in the room. And say, <laughs> I need y'all to be feminists and womanists, right? <laughs> and so... You know, I took that challenge to heart. So yeah, you don't have to thank me for doing what I should be doing. I do. I do. Mm. And hopefully thanking you will model and encourage other black men to, to be brave enough to have that stance. Really quickly before we get out of here, I want to just say that my privilege, and Tykeen brought it up a little bit, is to be able to say the things that a lot of black women cannot say because their voices are tied to their paychecks and their survival. There are plenty of women, even in the political world, I may not, I know I get on a lot of us to not speaking out and doing the work and, and especially about the political circles that this oppression happens in, especially for women of color. But I know many of you all, if you're listening, are really struggling with this battle because you want to speak out, but you cannot. And I just want to acknowledge that this is my privilege to be able to run my mouth and somehow still feed my daughter and myself and and get this going so i appreciate everyone's support in that and for those that are fighting silently in the background i want to thank you all for being here with us today this has been a wonderful conversation i can't wait to have you both back you know tykeen just shows up every now and then we appreciate his voice so It gave me a look. Shout out to the street committee, everybody out there. And again, we're going to be watching Dr. Spencer. And that's why I did call you Dr. Spencer's because these white men that are making these decisions for us, we need to model with them. We need to learn how to treat each other. I love you for that. But we're family. So Ah. so it's good. (laughs) I got a lot of white people listening. So I just want to make sure that they understand what's up. Thank you, y'all. And we'll see you next time. Having the privilege to speak out, like I was saying, of what I experience and what I get to do doesn't always feel like a privilege. And a lot of times it feels like the system is doing a lot of things to keep us down. And one of the voices that Dr. Spencer mentioned was Candace Lucas. And for those that don't know Candace Lucas, she has been around for a few years as an education advocate and have fought a lot of battles that people find controversial. Not to go too much into her story, but you can definitely look her up. But I thought it was important to bring to the forefront of what Candace is looking for and and just something that she's going through right now. The city of Henrico has actually petitioned the state 
to not allow Candace to act as a family advocate any longer. And what does that look like? Yeah, so as a, especially as a special ed parent of someone that's been placed in special ed, the IEP process needs a lot of advocating support, especially in Richmond public schools, especially for lower class black and brown students. I've been there, I've seen that. I've been a family advocate myself, just knowing the IEP system. So it's there to support the family, understanding the IEP process, which is a legal process. So the parents are supposed to run the IEP process, but Candace has been there many times to come in the school, set them in place and say the parent and the family actually runs this legal document, which then gives the parent a lot of power that the school system can't say much about and makes the school system do what they said they're going to do in these IEPs. But that's caused a lot of tension. And so Candace has been all around Central Virginia, just really trying to raise the profile of family rights, as well as what she's been going through. So currently, she will be at the courts on June 21st at 10 a.m. 701 Broad Street to really ask people to tell Henrico schools to stop and not convince the Judge Payne to sign the order banning her from advocating for Virginia families permanently. This is just an example. And Candace has also had the same pushback from community groups just after Henrico County Schools were vandalized with racist wording and pictures. There was a vigil held by Together We Will and Candace was not allowed to speak because she would not agree to the talking points and staying with the particular incident. She is known for bringing up the overall racism within the systems and history and connecting that to now. So it's looking at the voices of how we're treated and how we're valued and how we have to, to stick together with that. And everybody wants to change. Everyone's saying we're ready for change. We're ready for progress, but I really question how much we are willing to support the disruptors before we get to the healing process. If we want to heal, if we want to believe Black women, support Black women, start the healing process from how we've treated the most disrespected person in America, which is the Black woman, how can we do that if we're not properly addressing these wounds and we're continuing to bleed out? Is We have to have the disruption. We have to hear and document these processes of women. And a lot of that has to do with who has the authority and who has the power. And a lot of these men are still becoming in power. They still have the authority to say, your story doesn't matter, like Dr. Spencer was saying. And we see that at the national level too. Kat, you brought up a great point that we talked about earlier is the Joe Morrissey's, the Donald Trump's, the white men that have the power, the financial resources that have the proven history, but continue to be in power. I've seen a lot of comments about how could they vote that way? These are voting stupid. They don't really know what happened. I'm not here to blame the voter. I'm here to really talk about how we are going to organize and educate ourselves to show up and what we need to do to do the, the larger shift of our like-mindedness here in Virginia, here in the formal capital of the Confederacy of Richmond, Virginia. So there is work to do. And we're going to keep reporting on it, following up. And this has been a, a heavy episode, but I'm really inspired. So join us next week here on Race Capital. I'm from the R.